this opportunity to come together to grow in our knowledge of you, to grow in friendship with one another. It's a new day, Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. And so I pray that we would be aware of opportunities that we have to perhaps make a difference in somebody else's life around us, to help somebody, somebody who may be struggling or in need, um, an opportunity to maybe reconcile with somebody that we're in a dis disagreement with, maybe in a chance to tell somebody I love you that we haven't spoken to in a long time. So pray that we would just seize these opportunities and as we see them today. And uh, just thank you for this time together, time to just share in fellowship and friendship with each other. And look forward to a final day to this week and a weekend ahead. Lord, it's, it's still more or less a new year. We still have lots of opportunities ahead. We've all been blessed very richly. Some of us uh, are going through uh, great times, some through challenging times. Lord, I just pray your blessing on all the men here today and just grant them your peace and wisdom and your blessing as we go forward through the remainder of this, uh, this year coming up. And so, Lord, I pray with all the weather going on, you would keep everybody safe on the roads today and uh, just pour out your blessing on these guys, my brothers that I, I love so much. And, and uh, we just pray all of this in your amazing, sovereign, and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Take a seat, guys. Good morning, men. Uh, my name is Matt Wolf. I'm on the leadership team here. And we are thrilled to have our speaker, Mark Whitaker, with us this morning. I had the pleasure of meeting Mark down in Charlotte a few months back at a national board meeting uh, for NCS. And um, he is no stranger with uh, New Canaan Society. He spoke in 2016 at the national retreat down in DC. Some of you guys are familiar with him. Uh, he, he even tag teams with his wife uh, sometimes when they share. Um, but this is a, a unique opportunity to have Mark. Um, he's got an incredible story of redemption, second chances, and this incredible roller coaster ride of a, uh, a testimony that God's brought him on. Uh, he has a PhD in nutritional biochemistry. I don't even know where to start, how you would even have an interest in going down that path. But um, our brother Mark uh, has a really neat uh, resume, worked at multiple Fortune 500 um, companies uh, internationally, Germany, Asia, and um, as you guys may have seen in the, uh, the write-up, he is the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. His undercover work with the FBI during the ADM scandal in the 90s was the inspiration for the major motion picture, The Informant, starring Matt Damon. So I felt like I had to watch the movie going into this, mo this morning, and uh, I did. And I, I think Matt Dim Damon did okay. You know, I think he captured Mark's personality well. Maybe Matt's uh, mustache was a little off, but um, it, it was entertaining. Uh, in incredible story. Um, anyway, Mark came to faith uh, under Chuck Colson's uh, prison ministry uh, in a brief run in, in prison. And um, now he's doing some incredible work uh, within the Coca-Cola Consolidated Companies 
uh, within the T-Factor division. Awesome, awesome testimony. Excited to welcome our brother, Mark. Thank you, Matthew. Can everybody hear me okay? Just wanted to check the, just do a real quick volume check. Everybody hear me? Yes, sir, we got you. Good, good. Well, thank you for having me. It's great here to be with uh, NCS this morning. I've had the, the blessing to speak at many NCS groups, uh, Tom Cole's group in, in New York City, actually twice, and the Connecticut, uh, and spoke also in the Connecticut, Connecticut group, Cincinnati for Mark Bodie and so I've had a chance to speak at probably about a half dozen NCS groups around the around the country, and and also as Matthew said at the at the uh, national meeting in 2016 that was in D.C. Washington D.C. So thanks for having me. It's great uh, to be able to share here this morning, and I look forward to share. And I kind of want to start off with a journey that started when I was when I was 32 years 32 years old. That was five years ago, by the way. Uh, that was actually 32 years ago. I'm 64 years old now, so it's been quite a journey. Uh, I didn't become a Christian till age 40, so about 24 years ago. And I'm going to share a little bit about my journey before uh, before I, I met Jesus, and and a little bit about my journey since then, and talk a little bit about, and probably spend quite a bit of time on on current times where God has me now, and 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 where God has me focusing uh, my life now in this in, in this season. But at 32 years old, I was divisional president of, of ADM, Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, they were number 56 on the Fortune 500 at the time, 70 billion in revenue, uh, annual revenue at the time, 30,000 employees. They're even larger today on the Fortune 500 than they were 30 years ago. I was eight years uh, with the organization and I started off as divisional president of the biotech division, uh, having a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell. I went to school in uh, New York I got a bachelor's and master's from Ohio State and a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell. And that led me to the biotech uh, industry, obviously with a degree and that background. And I was president of the biotech division, which is products like ethanol, citric acid, lactic acid goes into Campbell's soup, high fructose corn syrup, some of the things that are produced uh, from corn and soy because uh, ADM is a huge commodity business and they were producing value added products. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And you look at something like high fructose corn syrup, it's difficult to find a product that doesn't have some high fructose corn syrup in it. Breakfast cereals, Kellogg, Pillsbury, Kraft, and, and they're the largest producer of that in the world. So I was divisional president of the biotech division at 32. I remember the first week at, at that position, the CEO, uh, the seven top executives got their own jet. So I had, was had, given a jet to me, a Falcon 50, I bought the CEO's home my third week. He was 75 years old and our president was 69. And so the CEO, when I was looking for a home to move my family to Decatur, Illinois, he said, why don't you buy my home? And I said, well, tell me about your home. And it's 13,000 square feet, eight car garage, three golf greens, uh, horse riding stables where your kids could ride an inside arena. And this, like I said, the example I'm sharing with you now is an example of a selfish leadership. It was uh, I was not a Christian at that at that time, and I bought his home my third week working there. He gave me a startup bonus to to be the down payment, and that was my third week working there. And he gave me a startup bonus to be the down payment on a on a mansion that he lived in for thirty years. It was the original house that John Daniels had, who founded Archer Daniels Midland one hundred and fifteen years earlier. Uh, so it was a yeah, huge mansion. 
And I filled that eight car garage with eight cars out of Ferrari, two BMWs, two Mercedes. I mean, I was basically the best way to say it is, I felt like I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. I mean, I thought I was a, thought I was a rock star uh, during that time. And I really got obsessed with that whole lifestyle, greed, power, being the number four executive, ranked executive of a Fortune 56 company at age 32 and having a 69-year-old president and a 75-year-old CEO, double my age so I could see plenty of room to move up even from number four to eventually be number one or number two. And that was my focus. And that's, that's what I got obsessed with. So uh, my God for sure would have been money and finances and greed during that time. So my wife became a Christian 10 years before me. She was a Christian at, at th age 30. And she asked me one day, she said, and I met my wife, by the way, when she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade. So we knew each other since junior high, went to our proms together and just known her all those, you know, all those years since our youth, since she was 13 and I was 14. And she asked me, she said, boy, Mark, your life seems to be really changing. I'm a couple of years with ADM at this point. I would have been 34 years old. She was a year behind me in school, in our high school. And she asked me, she said, what's going on with your life? Something's changed these last seven months. And I've known her since seventh grade. So I started sharing with her. And I said, well, the CEO's now 77 years old. Keep in mind, this is a couple of years after I joined. And he's mentoring me to take over an international cartel. And I'm, we're going to make millions doing that. And I was already making two or three million a year with, with the bonuses, the stock options and the bonuses at the company. And keep in mind, this is 1989. You're talking over 30 years ago, uh, two or three million a year, the eight years I was there. And she said, and she said, well, what's price fixing? I said, well, it's where we get together our competitors and we're fixing the prices of ingredients like high fructose corn syrup that goes into Coca-Cola and citric acid that goes into Campbell's soup and lactic acid that goes into breakfast cereals. And, and she said, boy, Mark, that just sounds like stealing. I said, well, uh, there are laws against it, but everybody does it. They've been doing it for 12 years. He's the CEO's heading towards 80 years of age. So if I'm going to continue to move up the corporate ladder, this is what I got to do. And there's no choice about it. And he tells me that in the commodity business, you can't survive without doing this. And she said, boy, Mark, that's just outright fraud. She said, well, who paid, how much does the company earn? I said, they earn about an extra billion dollars a year, not a million, but a billion dollars a year. Uh, pre-tax profit from the price fixing the international cartel is what i'm told and i'm being mentored for about seven months and eventually i will have to take this cartel over and she said she said well who pays for it and i said well basically the consumers pay for it they buy 40 50 worth of groceries they pay an extra five dollars that's it four or five dollars it's small she said you mean my grandma on social security is is paying for this and one of her biggest expenses is groceries she said, Mark, this is crazy. This is outright fraud. And she said she was going to go back in her study and pray about it. We talk about it later. Well, she came back a couple hours later and she said, God led her to a decision. She said, God led her to a decision to turn me into the FBI. I said, Ginger, if you turn me into the FBI, I could go to prison for breaking antitrust laws. I said, our CEO is a billionaire. He's best friends with President Clinton. He flew on the on President Clinton's plane to President Nixon's funeral. They talk, I mean, every week or two, he's on the phone with President Clinton. This CEO will destroy us. This is one of the largest companies in the world. I'm more, we would, should be more concerned about them than we would be about the government. And she said, you know what, Mark? God's gonna protect us, but we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it today.
and you're turning yourself into the FBI. And if you don't do it today, I'm doing it for you. But it's going to happen today because you're seven months involved with this and you got to do it. And so, like I said, I've known her since uh, since she was 13 and I knew she wasn't going to change her mind. And within a couple hours after trying to talk her out of it, I said, Ginger, we could be homeless. She said, you know what? I'd rather be homeless than live in a home where illegal activity is occurring and where every consumer in the world where ADM sells ingredients is being ripped off. And it's difficult to buy a processed food or beverage that doesn't have something from ADM, Arthur Daniels Midland in it. So we're sitting with the FBI and I never forget that. And I remember the FBI saying, now, what's going on? I said, well, it's really not that big. You got drug cases to do and bank robberies and all these more important things. This isn't very important for you. And, and I said, it's really not worth your time for all the things you got going on. I told the FBI, Ginger's by my side, which was a huge mistake. And she said, well, what do you, she said, it's, and he's, and she, and she said, well, it's a billion dollar crime. And he said, a billion dollar crime. She, she said, yes, it's a billion dollar crime. And he said, now, how long has this been going on? The FBI said, and I said, it's not really been that long. You got a lot more important things to do with all the drug cases in the area and bank robberies. And I was trying to do Bill Clinton, you know, in this, in this, in this, uh, during this session. And I was a nervous wreck, you know, first time with law enforcement, ever being confronted with law enforcement. And Ginger said, they've been doing it for 12 years, a billion dollar crime for 12 years. So he should have just interviewed Ginger and left me out of it. But in the end, he got all the truth out after about four hours. I had a choice that day. This would have been November 5th, 1992, uh, 30 years ago, 30 years ago now. I, would have, I had a choice to either be arrested or wear a wire for the FBI. And I tell you, I couldn't imagine being arrested that day. So I ended up being wired up 6 a.m. the next morning by the FBI agents. And I wore a wire for them nine, 10 hours a day for three years, from 1992 to 1995, every Monday through Friday for three years. You go to the FBI Museum in Washington, D.C., it has the equipment I wore undercover in the museum. That's how big this case was. It was the largest price fixing case, antitrust case in U.S. history, started by my wife, Ginger stay-at-home mom. Uh, so she was the whistleblower in the case. And that's the difference between a whistleblower and informant. A whistleblower is someone that sacrifices everything to do the right thing. And an informant is someone that wears a, that, that has a choice to either be arrested or wear a wire. And that was me. And that's the difference between a whistleblower and informant. My wife sacrificed everything to do the right thing. So then I started wearing a wire. I wanted to show a show a green lamp to, real quick uh, to you. This was the green lamp. Hope this is showing up there on a slide. I think I'll try to put it, uh, enlarge it a little bit. Hopefully you're seeing a green lamp on the, on, the, on, the, on the screen. And this green lamp had the video camera in it. And this green lamp, the FBI wanted to capture this on video because they knew they were going up against one of the largest companies in the world number 56 on the Fortune 500, 70 billion in revenue. So they wanted to show a jury what was going on, not just the jury to hear the audio tapes that I was making being wired. And this green lamp was at the Shangri-La Hotel with 11 individuals price fixing, the international cartel. Then it was in the Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong. Then it was in the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. And this green lamp was at two or three meetings a month with the same 11 guys for three years and they never noticed it. And it was sitting five feet from them. No matter what country they were in, this video camera in this lamp 
and the FBI would be in the next room and they could zoom in whoever was talking and sharing. So they controlled that video camera and the lamp. And I look back and I say, thank God we didn't have a woman criminal among us. Because if we had a woman criminal among us, I'm convinced she would say that green lamp was following us around the world. Because think about that, two or three times a month, that, that green lamp was with the same 11 guys in this international cartel from executives from different companies from all around the, from all around the world. So I wanted to share that. It's just an example that greed blinds you. They're so obsessed with the millions of dollars of bonuses they were going to get, get from this price fixing scheme that they didn't see what was five feet from them. That was this green lamp. So I wear the wire three years at the end. There's a lot more details on my website, but I want to get into some things that God's had me do now. So I'm kind of giving you an abbreviated testimony, but on markwhittaker.com, it has my full testimony and a lot more details. But in the end that I had, they offered me all the others, 30 people were convicted, four people from ADM alone. It was a seven week trial. I was the only one a witness, the only one that uh, wore a wire for in the case. And the FBI gave me six months, six months in federal prison. All I had to do is, is plead guilty and go to prison for six months in a white collar camp, Martha Stewart type, uh, type prison. And my lawyer called me in Chicago, said, Mark, six months, deal of a lifetime. Ginger was by my side. She said, Mark, let's sign it. Get this thing behind you. You go in at prison at age 38. Keep in mind, I wore a wire for three years by this point. You go to prison for, at 38 and you come out at 38. And I looked at Ginger and I said, Ginger, you're the reason why I'm in this mess in the first place. I had to wear a wire 10 hours a day for three years because of you. And I'm gonna do the opposite Ginger that you want me to do. And I ripped up that plea agreement in her face and I fired that lawyer and I hired a whole bunch of lawyers. I ended up having 11 lawyers over, over three years of court trials. And I went to, went, I basically took the case to trial and I ended up getting eight and a half years instead when I had a six month plea agreement right in front of me. I was my own worst enemy every step of the way. And I told Ginger it was her fault. I wanted to do the opposite she wanted me to do. And now I had an eight year, eight and a half year sentence. Well, I pulled my car in one of those garages knowing I had from age 40 to 49, because keep in mind, I went to trial. So all the three years of court, I'm now no longer 38. I'm, all, I'm at the end of being age 40. I'm a month from being 41. And I, took, and I took that plea agreement and threw it away. Now I have eight and a half years. Do I try to take my own life? I was hospitalized for a month. I couldn't imagine going to prison for almost nine years from age 40 to 49. And there's someone who read about it in the newspaper. His name was Ian Howes from a group called CBMC. And he read about a Christian businessman connection. He reached out to me. He was CFO of a pharmaceutical company. And I never forget seven months before I went to prison, he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life. And you're going to find your true purpose in your life with the journey you're ready to start. I mean, I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard saying, this is going to be the beginning of my life. And I'm age 40, about ready to go to prison for nine years. He started taking me through a study called Operation Timothy and introduced me to God and introduced me to Jesus, a discipleship program, a one-on-one -on -one discipleship program. And he planted a strong seed and he started giving me hope where I didn't want to take my life anymore. And then my second week in prison, seven months after Ian Howes' disciple me, a man named Chuck Colson showed up to visit me. Chuck Colson was the White House counsel under President Nixon, you may remember. 
may recall, and he went to prison for the Watergate scandal back in the 70s. This would have been 1998, 20 years later after Chuck Colson went to prison. And he showed up and told me it's going to be the beginning of my life. And I said, well, someone else has been sharing that with me for seven months. And I told him about the Bible study that I was going through. He said, Mark, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? I said, Chuck, I, I, it's, I've given hope, but I had eight years of college in biochemistry at Ohio State and Cornell. I even had professors at Cornell in New York say, if you're a Christian, you can't be in my class. If you're a Christian, you can't be a PhD scientist. All I learned in eight years was Darwinism, Big Bang Theory, evolution, basically a secular education that there is no God. I'll never forget Chuck Colson saying, Mark, do you think there's, do you think there's a scientist that believes in God? And I said, no, I don't think there is. And he started sharing book after book and article after article. And he poured his life into me, discipling me. And, and some of the best scientists in the world that believed in God that I was never told that at the university. Even Albert Einstein, he showed me an article that Albert Einstein said only God could create the universe and only God could create man. And the Big Bang Theory was impossible. It was the opposite of everything I learned during those eight years of science and biochemistry in, in my college years. So I can remember, I remember after all the things he shared, article after article and book after book, especially a book by Don Byerly in Minnesota, an atheist who tried to prove there was no God. And after studying it for 10 years, he wrote a book called Surprised by Faith, that God does exist and Jesus is the son of God. When I finished that book, I surrendered my life to Jesus that day on June 4th, 1998, my third month in prison, a month after I turned 41 years of age. But I still had eight years of prison to do, but it changed my life. I started discipling some of the inmates through Operation Timothy in the same Bible study that Ian Howes and Chuck Colson were discipling me. I started helping some guys get their GEDs and it became some of the most productive years of my life at $20 a month. $20 a month in prison after two and three million a year for eight years, then I was $20 a month for eight years in federal prison. It became the most productive years of my life. And I learned how rewarding it was to serve and be a servant leader because I'd never done that prior to that point. I never experienced servant leadership. It was all selfish leadership prior to that point. It was life changing and it changed my life. And then my wife and kids started visiting me every weekend and visit me on Friday evenings and all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And they saw the transformation and it has saved our marriage. Not only did it save my soul, it saved our marriage. And we're married 43 years in June. And I have, a, keep in mind, my wife turned me into the FBI. And then I throw a six month plea agreement away saying it's all her fault. And we're married for 43 years. It's a miracle of God that our marriage could survive this. The companies that, that I stole from on the price fixing scheme, including Coca-Cola Consolidated, Kellogg's, Procter & Gamble, they got together and gave a whistleblower reward to my wife, my first year in prison, because they won millions of dollars back in class action suits. Coca-Cola alone won 400 million for the high fructose corn syrup price fixing. And they shared that with my wife and gave her a whistleblower reward that financed her while I was in prison. So basically the companies I stole from financed my family while I was in prison, another miracle. The FBI agents and prosecutors started visiting me in prison and became my biggest cheerleaders today. All four of the FBI agents, my prosecutor and my judge 
have all written letters trying to get me a presidential pardon. It takes about 20 years to get a pardon, by the way, on average. And they've all written, uh, they've all written letters on my behalf. Very seldom do you get the FBI agents, prosecutor and judge write letters for a presidential pardon for someone that they put in prison themselves. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I got hired when I got out of the university, uh, got hired by a biotech company. They were visiting me in prison, they had me review their patents and their strategic plans. And they hired me the day after I got out at Cancer Research Company in California, a biotech company. And, and I started like someone the level right out of college. At age 49, out of prison, I'm starting right, over, right all over, like a PhD coming right out of college. And after four promotions, I became the COO of that company, the number two in that company, but this time doing it God's way and not my way, and a Christian CEO too at that company. So I'm still on their advisory board today of that company, and I now work for Coca-Cola Consolidated. That, that's all about integrating faith and work. It's not Coca-Cola in Atlanta. This is a Coca-Cola bottling company, the largest bottler in America. Our purpose statement is to honor God in all we do. And we have chaplains in every plant, 102 plants, Bible studies, prayer groups. And I lead T-Factor, which is all about integrating culture in the company. And it's where we train other leaders of other companies how to integrate faith in their company called T-Factor Events that we do quarterly at, uh, at Coca-Cola Consolidated. So it's like God gave me another chance in another large company, but this time to do it his way and not my way. And I wanna share a little bit about how that's kind of the 25 year journey about, uh, about uh, my life before God, my life after God. But I wanna share a little bit about kind of current times where, where God has me. Well, my main activity is in my day, you know, my day job is T-Factor discipling leaders, training leaders to integrate faith in their work. And it's just, a, it's just a, I mean, I, it's just a miracle that God would put me with a company that I stole from 30 years ago. Coca-Cola Consolidated was one of the largest victims. So think about, I work for a company that I stole from 30 years ago, leading an initiative, leading a division. And it, I mean, that's a miracle. And that my family stayed with me and that the companies financed my family during that time when I was in prison. Those are absolute miracles of God. Another thing that where God has me is has me since I got out of prison, which is uh, over 16 years ago now. So heading on two decades that God has me read the Bible through each year through a Bible reading plan. The one I did last year, kind of just talking about current times was the one year Bible. I'm holding it up now and hope that uh, Hope it shows up there, but the one-year Bible, which is a little bit of the Old Testament, a little bit of the New Testament, some Proverbs and Psalms every day, and then, and then in a year, you've read the complete Bible. That's what I did last year in 2020-21. Now I'm doing in 2022 the Bible recap. If you go to YouVersion Bible and you look at the plans on YouVersion, the, the Bible app, and on the plans, it's got one by Lee Cobble. And that's a one-year Bible, and that's what I'm currently doing, and it's more chronological for my one-year Bible. It's 20, 25 minutes a day, and at the end of the year, you read the entire Bible, but that's where God's led me. Some of the books, I would say, some of the most recent reads that have been most impacting uh, to me, so you know, talking about recent times, is Ken Boa's book, Life in the Presence of God. Uh, Ken Boa, and it's titled Life in the Presence of God. Great book. It's been life-changing for me. One of the things that's got me doing that I never did prior to reading this book is 
is praying on the top of every hour. Even if I'm in a meeting or in a Zoom meeting, then I pray just silent to myself, God speak through me uh, during this meeting that I'm at. But praying on the top of every hour, and that's something I never did. I did always during meals and during the evening and during morning, during my quiet time. But that was new for me to pray on the top of every hour. And that came about after reading Ken Boas' Life in the Presence of God. So it, it really helps you have some new practices that you can do to have God more in your life on an hourly basis instead of, uh, you know, often, it's so often, and I, and I was this person when I got out of prison, we can be a, a Monday morning atheist. We can be a Christian on the weekends, but we turn that switch off at work because we don't know how to integrate faith at work. I mean, that's what NCS is all about. It helps you uh, be equipped to integrate faith at work. But that Kim Bow book even helped me take that to the next level. Another book that I'm reading currently is Andrew Murray, Abide in Christ. Hope that shows up on the screen. Andrew Murray, Abide in Christ. And this book has been so impacting. Just started reading this around Christmas time. And I actually have a group, a men's group. There's 11 of us. and We meet every other Saturday. We just started our seventh year together in January last month, seventh year, and we do book studies. And now we're, do, we're actually going through this as a group too. So this is a book I started reading individually and now it's in our group, our men's group that I have a discipleship, a discipleship group. So those are things that are impacting me uh, currently. I find quiet time uh, paramount of importance. I never forget when I got out in 2006, and, and Chuck Colson is still discipling. He didn't pass until 2012 at age 80, and he was he was on fire for Jesus till the day he passed. He actually passed out on stage giving his testimony, sent to the hospital, and died when he was in the hospital during that time. But he was working until age 80, serving God every day. But one of the things he did in 2006, and I told him I'm in the biotech industry and busy again, and I don't have the amount of time for quiet time that I had when I was in prison and my time is limited. And I said, I'm trying to do 15 or 30 minutes, but I said, Chuck, I don't have a, a couple hours on quiet time anymore now that I'm not in prison. And I'll never forget a quote he told me. And I was only out of prison a couple months at that point in 2006 that changed how I did my quiet time. And this is a quote by Martin Luther from the 1790s. And this quote says this, Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today. There's no way I can get it all done. So therefore, I'm going to have to pray for three hours because that's the only way God can accomplish it. Think about that. I have so much to do, to do today. There's no way I can get it all done. Therefore, I'm going to have to pray for three hours because that's the only way God can accomplish it. Not less quiet time when you're busy in the busy world, even more quiet time. And Chuck Colson Help me build that. I'll never forget Chuck Colson, how he poured into my life. Like I said, he was a, like a father uh, to me. He visited me a Saturday per month and had to fly there to get there for eight and a half years in prison, a Saturday a month. And then we talked two or three times a week when I got out from 2006 until he passed in 2012. Tremendous man, tremendous uh, servant of God and a true ambassador for Christ and impacted many in this uh, in this world uh, during the time that he served uh, served God. He became a transformed man at age 40 compared to who he was when he was in the White House as a White House counsel in Watergate. His nickname was the Hatchet Man at that time. And he became a transformed man at age 40 when he surrendered himself to, to God. So those are some of the things that uh, 
where God's uh, led me, what, where I'm currently at. And it's still a work in progress. It's still a lot to learn. I, I feel like we never uh, get completely there, but just continue to grow and learn and having others around me. I do disciple guys just like Chuck Colson discipled me. I have five guys I'm discipling. Uh, currently, individually discipling using Operation Timothy, the discipleship tool by CBMC. And I continue that and I will continue that for the rest of my life because the impact it had on me being discipled one-on-one. But I'd love to open this up uh, to questions if we could about uh, kind of about anything about my testimony or anything about kind of where God has me currently. Love to open that up. But I do want to emphasize this. When my wife was on CBS News when the movie came out in 2009, I was in California in a meeting. She was on CBS News in New York and they asked her, they said, Ginger, how'd you do it? And she said, I tell you what, when Mark told, tore that six month sentence up, that six month plea agreement, she said, I absolutely wanted to kill him. Murder was an option, but divorce was not an option, but murder was. And she said that on national TV. And then they asked her, said, Ginger, but how, how'd you do it? I mean, how do you feel things are different now? And she said, looking back, I think Mark would have came out the same greedy man. He went in with a, with a six, with a six month sentence. He would have came out the same selfish person. She said, God gave him exactly what he needed, which was nine years in prison. Six month sentence would not have changed him. He would have not listened to Chuck Colson with six month sentence. I would have loved to have been on that interview and say two years would have been enough, but, uh, uh, but I will say this, I don't think six months would have been enough. So I agree. Brokenness, I thank God for brokenness today because I needed to be broken and to get to the end of myself, to get to know God. Well, thank you for letting me share there today, you guys. Thank you, Mark. That was awesome. What an incredible testimony. Um, does anybody have any questions for Mark? I mean, the first thing I'm going to say is to everyone here now that we were talking about Valentine's Day is thank God for a good woman. I mean, take care of your wife, because if it wasn't for her, um, you know, this whole story could have been completely different. Um, it also goes to show you that oh, we have a question in the back. Hello, Dr. Whitaker. So basically, I'm curious, and I thought of this morning with all the power that you had um, how did you stay pure to such a lovely wife? I tell you, and that's something I did stay pure. It's amazing how I was willing to cross the line for the fraud. And we had a lot of, lot of drinking in the company at ADM. There are a lot of, there are a lot of drugs. Even the vice chairman was, uh, was using cocaine. And I tell you, I never, it's amazing as, 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 as obsessed I became with greed. And, and, and get involved with the bonuses and the under table bonuses and the fraud and the price fixing that, that my wife, the fact that I met her so young that I never, cause all the womanizing came up from all the others, you know, during the trial and stuff. And that's something that God, that I was protected from. I never, I guess I'm so busy and so obsessed with moving up the corporate ladder, corporate ladder and greed. I never went after other women or the drinking or the drug or the drug outlets. My obsession was greed. Goes to show you Blessed that my wife uh, hung in there through that. that. That's awesome. That is tremendous. Hey, Mark, yes. another question here. Um, radical life change from extreme affluence to normalcy. You know, how, how did that transition back into a new reality go uh, after, after prison and just? Well, 
Yeah, I think with eight and a half years in prison at $20 a month, I mean, there's nothing more humbling. There's nothing more humbling than that. And if you got a greed addiction, eight years for $20 a month is going to break that greed addiction. So I just felt so blessed since I got out and still today to have a second chance that that Ferrari and all those things. I mean, think about that Ferrari is rusted and and probably and probably been trashed at this point 30 years later. I mean, those things, those things come and go. Eternity is forever. So basically working on things for eternity is so much more rewarding than things that are going to be all rust and 10 years later after you get them. Any other questions? Andy, did you have something? Or? No. Well, I, I loved what you said. Thank God for brokenness. Um, you know, that's how God gets us to our purpose in life a lot of times. Um, it's not always easy to go through. But uh, when you look back, you know, a lot of people that go through things like that say, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't either. As hard as it was, I would not either. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It also goes to show you that you can have everything and still have nothing. So, you know, what's the most important thing? Like you said, the Ferrari sitting in the, in the barn, it's going to rust, it's going to pass away, but uh, your salvation is forever. So, yeah. Any other questions for Mark? Or? Yes, Fred. Oh, a couple more. Um, I was just going to ask, um, was there a moment when you look back on when you were newly recruited out of your schooling and brought in when you knew that you either had to kind of buy into the price fixing and all of it would come, or you had to turn away and go find another job? Or was it something that just they gave you the money and you were in the business and slowly you began to realize over time that, uh, that this was all illegal and that you were already in? Well, basically, it was two years that I was with the company. And then this vice chairman came back to my office and he gave me a $100,000 check and 25,000 shares of stock, a warrant, not a stock option. I could have cashed those stock that day. So that was a stock warrant. So it was about a million dollars between the two. And it was not at our time or normal performance review time. So I knew something was up, but I was so greedy. I sure wasn't going to try to run him down the hall and give it back. So he came back an hour later, and then I knew what the million dollars was for. This was two years at the company. He said, Mark, you're part of the family. We see, we trust you now. We see you're part of the family. We're going to start bringing you in some things we that we're involved with that you've not been a part of yet. And we're going to start mentoring you. And some point, some point you're going to be leading this, this mission. He called it mission. It was really a cartel, but he said, leading this mission. And I said, what is it? And he said, well, we're meeting with our competitors and we have a a cartel ongoing, the commodity business, is, it's the only way you can run business. It's The laws on the books are from the 1800s and they shouldn't even exist. Politicians don't even know about business. So he said, this is what you have to do in this business. And he started sharing with me and I said, boy, is that legal? Maybe he said, no, it's not legal. But he said, everybody does it and we have to do it. And he just gave me a million dollars an hour. And that's when I got to the fork of the road. And that's when I should have walked away because I know you wouldn't move up the corporate ladder if you didn't do it. I should have walked away, but I was so obsessed with the compensation before that, the million dollars he gave me an hour before that, that I didn't walk away. Almost like the movie Firm. I just couldn't walk away. So that was the fork of the road right there. And seven months later, I share it with my wife and she turns me in. That's, that's the sequence. <laughs> 
Yes. When the FBI finally uh, broke it to the company, what kind of scorn did you face and pressure from the company and uh, how did you handle it? Oh, the scorn was, uh, I tell you, the pressure. Prison was a cakewalk compared to those years of wearing a wire and the FBI would wire me. There's a documentary on my website called markwhitaker.com with the three right on the homepage, investigation discovery, markwhitaker.com with the real agents and the agents, as they say in that documentary, and as they told me during that time, they said, Mark, if these guys get you, they're going to kill you. And I heard that two or three times a week for three years. I lost 60 pounds wearing a wire. People at work thought I had cancer. I was falling apart mentally and emotionally during that time. So then they had a raid of 70 agents broke into the company to get computers, paperwork, everything that supported what they had on, on tape on this raid. And that very day, the, the ADM learned that I was the informant, the one that that caused that judge to give a court order for that raid because we're in a wire for three years. And they came after me with everything they had, a $70 billion company, everything they had, they came after me. Yeah, the scorn was unbelievable. Death threats and everything during that time. The FBI even considered at that time witness protection when all that was going on. Anyone else? We're just going to close. Mark, thank you so much. Great having you. Fantastic thank you. story. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks, God, for how you can turn things around and how you can use a what's garbage in, you know, any situation and turn it in for your glory, Lord. And, uh, bless Mark and his ministry and as he, as he mentors people now. And thank you for every man here. We just pray for favor for each and every one of them, for protection for them and their families today and for the weekend. And Lord, we just thank you for Jesus Christ, your son.